And in chapter 19, the theme that we've been looking at that we see there is the theme of revival or spiritual awakening. And I'm using those interchangeably, kind of both of those terms. Uh, Typically, we talk about revival among believers and churches. Uh, You've got to be vived to be revived, uh, you know, so, uh, but, um, and spiritual awakening, they're all, I'm just using those together because what we see in the city of Ephesus is we, we see a tremendous spiritual breakthrough uh, that Paul, God is using the Apostle Paul in the ministry of the gospel. The gospel is advancing, and uh, we've been using this little definition. It certainly is not the only definition, but uh, one book that I uh, have benefited by, uh, one of the uh, historians and people who've taught and instructed on the history of revivals and spiritual awakenings in the United States and also around the world is by uh, a man by the name of Richard Owen Roberts. But we've been using this little definition when he talks about a spiritual awakening, a revival, is that he, in just a simple way, it's an extraordinary movement of the Holy Spirit producing extraordinary results. An extraordinary movement, or an extraordinary movement, however you want to say that, of the Holy Spirit producing uh, extraordinary results. All right? So that is uh, what we see in Ephesus that begins uh, in the uh, first part of, uh, of uh, Ephesus in chapter 19. And we've looked at four of what I've called marks of revival. And just by way of a, a, a quick review, in the verses 1 through 9, we see how when the Holy Spirit came upon those disciples of John, they'll put those four up there in just a moment, those uh, review points. But we see in verses 1 through 9, we see that it began with a manifestation of God's presence. Always when there's a spiritual awakening, there's an unusual manifestation of God's presence. Now, don't think that it means that there's always bizarre, weird stuff that goes on. Sometimes when we talk about revivals, sometimes revivals have been known for uh, just some crazy stuff that comes under uh, the name of Jesus or the name of God that really has nothing to do with him. And we live in an area that if you Google revival, you'll probably uh, come up with the word Lakeland because of some things that happened at a particular church here that for the most part really were just uh, atrocious of the things that went on there. A lot of bizarre behavior of people purporting to be prophets and apostles but yet could not identify the leader of that revival that was living uh, as an adulterer and as an alcoholic. So if you're a prophet of God and you can't discern the person that's leading this revival to be an adulterer and alcoholic, something's wrong with your calling as a prophet. Hello? Okay, that's free, all right? So, um, but it began, and the manifestation of, the, of God's presence, even though there was this tongues and prophesying that linked back to uh, uh, the day of Pentecost... And, and it was a, it, that wasn't the manifestation. The manifestation of God's presence is we see the advancement of the Word of God. We see the advancement of the gospel. That was uh, how God manifested His presence and what He was doing at Ephesus. And then we looked at a demonstration of God's power. We looked at those individuals that tried to 
uh, cast out a, a demonic man using the name of Jesus, kind of as a, the seven sons of Sceva, we called them. And uh, we know how that ended, where uh, the demonic man leaped on this, uh, these seven men that were trying to cast out a demon. They themselves were uh, demonic and false uh, teachers, and they were trying to engage and use Jesus kind of as a little parlor trick and figured we would uh, use that name and that might work for us. And this demonic man jumped over them and gave them a whooping, as we used to say uh, where I grew up. And uh, the Bible says that they ran off uh, naked. And as I said, a, a biblical principle is if you start a fight and get in a fight, and at the end of that fight you're not wearing pants, you lost that fight. Okay, that's just kind of back there in the map somewhere, a principle that we want you to encourage to have. But as a result of what Satan was trying to do, because the way to understand that, we've talked a lot about it, is how Ephesus really was a center of occultic and idol worship. And so there was a very heavy demonic presence that Ephesus was known for. We refer to it and know it biblically as demonic, but they, were, they had a, a, a large... Uh, ma- uh, idol, uh, Artemis is the Greek word, the Latin is, if you have a King James, it might call it the uh, Diana, that's the Latin name, but it's the same thing, and they were known for this large idol, and it basically was a, uh, among uh, a lot of the religions of the ancient uh, world in this day, were also built around idol idolatry and a lot of magical, we call magical, but occultic practices might be a more helpful term in our understanding, but there was a lot of sexual immorality associated with that with prostitution that was associated with the temple and, and a lot of uh, uh, terrible things. So as a result of Satan trying to maintain the stronghold in Ephesus, uh, he, was, he was trying to uh, demonstrate his power, but uh, what happened is, is that the name of Jesus, verse 17, was magnified. Uh, even though Satan tried to disrupt things, the name of Jesus was magnified, and the gospel, the name of Christ, was advanced. So uh, whatever the enemy tries to throw at uh, God, how many of you know God is Tony Evans, to quote Tony Evans, one of the things I love, he said, he said God is always bigger than the bad. He's always bigger than the, than the devil. God's in control. So we see a magnification of the name of Jesus there going on in Ephesus, and that's always a mark of genuine spiritual awakening. And as a result, verses 18 and 19, there was an authentication of where these people that profess Christ uh, 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 actually demonstrated their genuine conversion to Christ by by their actions, and we'll refer to that a little later. And this morning, we want to see the last mark, and certainly these aren't the only marks, but they just kind of uh, appear here in uh, chapter 19, is we see how that the community, we see a transformation in the community as a result of what God was doing in this spiritual awakening. Remember, I, I, uh, this is in Ephesus, and by way of reference, the city of Ephesus was a, uh, was a center of occultism. Uh, the, the, there should be a map that should be up there, and you'll see how that the, the city of Ephesus and where it was located in that little red circle kind of um, next to, even though the Bible talks about Asia or Asia Minor, today that's modern-day Turkey. There's still remnants of these cities. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, you'll see the seven uh, churches that are referred to, Ephesus is the first one because most of the, uh, the other six either directly were planted or came out of the church at Ephesus. So where the city of Ephesus was a megacenter of occultism and idolatry, 
God had a different purpose. God had something different. And God began to transform this community where it's, it was not, again, I don't, don't, don't misunderstand that everybody there was converted, but it began to be transformed to where it began to start in uh, churches throughout that country or throughout that region, but it became a, a massive base of operations for the advancement of the gospel, Ephesus. And you see that how it relates south of Jerusalem, and sometimes that's helpful just to see where it's located. So God had a strategic purpose in this spiritual awakening in Ephesus. And this morning, we want to just see this last mark of a of revival, spiritual awakening, and that is a transformation of the community. Let's pray and ask God's blessing one more time this morning. Father, we thank you, God, for just the, uh, as, we, as we bear witness to your word this morning, and see, God, how you worked uh, in a mighty supernatural way uh, through your servants, through your church. May we draw, uh, again, our own sense that you, God, desire, Lord, to work in our own community, Lord, for the advancement of the gospel for Christ, uh, to see our community transformed for Christ. Uh, start with me. Start with transformation in my life. Lord, before I import it or export it into other people's lives. But, Lord, we believe, God, that uh, you've not abandoned our community. And uh, we pray, God, that we'll draw encouragement and strength through your word this morning. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we're talking about a transformation of the community. And and just kind of look back uh, at verses 19 and 20. We looked at this last week, but under how they demonstrated uh, that they uh, authenticated their their actual conversion by what they by what they did, and it said that in verse nineteen and a number of those who had practiced notice past tense had practiced magic arts and when I talk about magic or the Bible refers to magic it's not talking about pulling a coin behind somebody's ear or pulling a rabbit out of a hat. That's really, we use terms like occultism or sorcery. That's more of what magic arts is referring to. It says they brought their books, these scrolls that perhaps uh, probably had incantations, their charms and different little uh, trinkets, and they brought them together and they burned them publicly in the sight of all and they counted the value of them and found it came to about 50,000 pieces of silver. (coughs) which some estimate uh, might have been, is in our dollars, about $6 million in today's money. 150 men, Warren Wiersbe uh, suggests that's about the salary of 150 men uh, salary for an entire year. So you see how their conversion to Christ, how they were getting rid of all this sorcery and occultism and all the trinkets and stuff, they were getting rid of that because... They simply understood that now that I'm a follower of Christ, I can't be doing this, okay? But see how it, where we want to go, how it affected the economy. Because as I said, Ephesus was immersed in this stuff, and their economy uh, was, was tied in to the advancement of this, uh, uh, primarily this uh, cult of Artemis, this, this massive idol that at one time was one of the seven wonders of the world. Ephesus is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. So with that in mind, uh, let's pick it up in verse 23. I'm not going to belabor this. Some things I'll paraphrase, but it's important before we make some application at the end, just kind of make sure where we're at as we finish out 
chapter 19. So verse 23, about that time, after all this had been going on, these people are converted, they're out burning $6 million worth of, you know, occultist uh, occultish, uh, uh, stuff that they've bought and purchased, and there's a whole industry wrapped around that. And so it says, verse 23, about that time when all this was going on, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. That's the second time that Christianity is referred to as the way. In chapter 9, verse 2, uh, it gives the first reference in referring to the way, probably maybe because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So they're called by the way. But notice the nice language Scripture gives, no little disturbance. That, that sounds nice, doesn't it? Sounds like some people were offended. They were bothered. No, this was a major disruption to the economy. Let's see what happens. Verse 24, and there was a man by the name of Demetrius, and he was a silversmith, and he made silver shrines of Artemis, this idol, and it brought no little business to the craftsmen. This was a big business that was being affected. And so Demetrius, uh, he was, uh, perhaps he was the, uh, they had trade unions of guilds and different uh, workers, so maybe he was kind of the union leader of this uh, silversmith group, but his, his financial profits were being impacted. Why? Because people were being converted, and they didn't need that junk. They didn't need that stuff anymore. And so verse uh, 25, these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, now don't miss this, men, you know that from this business, making all these trinkets and things related to the idols and the, you know from this business we have our wealth. So how were they getting wealthy? On the backs of this phony demonic religion, okay? Verse 26, and notice what he admits to. It's amazing how sometimes unbelievers will oftentimes profess truth in their words of negativity, right? Verse 26, and you see, he's talking to this crowd, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, Asia in this context is modern-day Turkey, that's why I showed you that map, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul, look what he's admitting, has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods, little g, made with hands, are not gods. Do you see what he's saying here? He's admitting that this Paul is disrupting our prophets, and it's having an impact on the economy And he's ticked off about it. And he's trying to get this mob going. He said, and there's a danger not only that this trade of ours, verse 27, may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence. In other words, you know, we've got to do something because not only is our business is threatened, but our reputation as a great city that people are flocking to and our reputation, kind of a nationalistic argument there. By the way, also in the temple of this idol was also a reservoir where other uh, countries or other cities and other people kept their vast wealth, much like uh, 
having a Swiss bank account where it somehow is protected. There was also known as a great treasury where there was a great security. So they saw this threat as a big deal to their entire nation as their economy. And what happened? Verse 28, it says that when they heard this, they were enraged. The NIV says furious. And they were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I mean, he got the crowd stirred up. The crowd is in a frenzy and a mob. They tried to drag a couple of Paul's companions into this amphitheater where they were going to have a kangaroo court, and uh, that failed, verse 29. So the city was filled with confusion. It says that twice in verse 29 and also in verse 32, that there was great confusion. They were just, uh, in fact, verse 32, it's interesting. I don't think I have it on the screen, but it says, uh, listen to this, if you have your Bibles, it said... Uh, now some, this is, you know, what happens in these kind of riots. Some cried out one thing, some another, but the assembly, this group was in confusion, and most of them did not even know why they had come together. Isn't that funny? You know, God is not the author of confusion, is he? Satan is confused. He, he can't keep track of his own demons um, because he's not omniscient and omnipresent. Uh, so there was confusion. Can you imagine them screaming and yelling and then, you know, hey, Ralph, what are we doing here? Why are we here? What are we angry about? What do we hate this week? You know? We see those people on uh, social media, don't we? Right? Listen, I had to take a couple of apps off my phone because I admit sometimes if I can't sleep, there's that bad habit of reaching over in the middle of the night, checking and I'd, you know, pull up a certain app or two, whatever, and I found myself getting riled up over stuff that I didn't care about 30 minutes ago, right? Oh, I can't believe they said that, you know? Verse 33, that's, again, I'm just paraphrasing. The Jews, there was Jews living in Ephesus. They tried to put forward this guy named Alexander, probably because they wanted to make sure that this mob and riot uh, they didn't associate them with the Christians, but as far as these pagans were concerned, they looked at Christians and Jews in the same light. They were both what is called monotheistic, meaning they worshipped one God. Uh, the pagans, the Ephesians, and that ancient world was polytheistic. They worshipped many gods, okay? So they, co- they put Jews and Christians in the same boat. Polytheism, Hinduism uh, is polytheistic, all right? Mormonism, hello, is polytheistic. They, meet, they believe in multiple gods, all right? So the Bible and our Jewish brethren, again, believe in, a, in one God. Islam, in all fairness, is monotheistic. So they, they, they put the Jews and the Christians in the same boat. But you have this guy in verse 35, and we're wrapping it up, making some points here, but just get the flavor. You have this town clerk who really functioned as a mayor, all right? He really was the liaison. Remember, this world is controlled by Rome, okay? So this guy who's a city clerk, he's functioning as a mayor, and he tries to squash this mob that is going on, all because of what? Paul and the advancement and preaching of the gospel. And so you got this old this, this, this city clerk, and he's trying to end this. You know why? It reminded me of Pilate. You know what Pilate's big concern was? Pilate was the governor of, of uh, Israel at the time, and he was a Roman official. 
And you know the reason he didn't want a great stir over the crucifixion of Jesus? Not because he had sympathy necessarily for Jesus. You know why? Because if they caused a riot and the disruption of the city and the community, you guess what? You would get Rome's attention. And the last thing Pilate wanted was to have a a contingency of an army to come down there and take control. This city clerk, same thing. He did not want to get Rome's attention, and he didn't want them coming down there and taking control. All right, As long as you kept the people quiet and the profits and taxes flowing to Rome, they left you alone. So this clerk isn't necessarily like he's kind of sympathetic there. He's just out for pure survival, all right? So that's what's going on there. And he kind of calmed them down and basically said, look, stop this. We don't need this. And he put some reason in their head, and then at the end of uh, chapter 19, they, 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 they dismissed the group, and they kind of all went their way. In chapter 20, verse 1, it says, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples after encouraging them. I don't know why I smile when I read this. It's not on the screen. Um, Is it on the screen? No, it's not on the screen. Sorry, I don't have it. He sent for his disciples and said, all right, boys, I left the city in good shape for you. Why? They're about ready to have a mob, and he's encouraging them. And what does he do? He says farewell, and he departed for Macedonia, which is really the region of Greece, right? Hey, guys, I'm out of here. Take it from here. You know, can you imagine them like, what? You're leaving? You know, I don't know why I found that funny. Um, by the way, Paul was wanting to, if you read verse, uh, I think verse 21 of chapter 19, you'll see that Paul wanted to go to Jerusalem, but I found this kind of just a little side note. You think, well, if he wants to go to Jerusalem, if you look on a map, Macedonia, Greece is like the opposite direction. You know what he's doing? He's going back to these churches that he established and he's receiving a collection. He talks about this. He's receiving a collection of funds because of the poverty and the needy uh, people that are in the church in Jerusalem, and he's making this trip. So before he goes to Jerusalem, he's collecting money from these Gentile converts to take to the church, uh, the Jewish brethren that are Christians down in Jerusalem. So that's kind of what's going on. Now, with all that being said, what we see here is this intensity of, of this obsessive, demonic stronghold of, of, these, of, these, of these false gods that are being affected here. The, the manufacture of these little shrines and trinkets and the books and all this stuff in a city like Ephesus was big bucks. You know, sin is big business. Do you realize that? Sin is big business. I was uh, just looking at a couple of things uh, do you realize that Planned Parenthood, according to their 2018 report, do you realize that they reported $1.9 billion in assets? That's billion with a B. Do you realize that they receive almost a half a billion dollars from you and me as taxpayers supported, right? You realize if you have been living in, in you know, some other land Regardless of what the media will have you think, Planned Parenthood's primary profit-making business is not ultrasounds, is not adoption counseling. It's abortions. That's a fact. In fact, they will even admit the president, who just got fired, by the way, a few weeks ago, 
You know why she got fired? Now, this shows you the craziness. This isn't political. This isn't political. I can care less your politics. Killing of infants in or out of the womb, God forbids. Okay, it's evil. It's evil. Demonic. Evil. I don't care whether you're Republican, Democrat, or Green Party, or Yellow Party, or Socialist, or whatever. Or you like to party. <laughs> uh, the president just was forced out by the Planned Parenthood board in the past two weeks. You know why? Because she wasn't extreme enough for the board. You know what she, they wanted to do? They wanted to include transgenderism as part of the mission of Planned Parenthood. And she said, no, I think we need to focus on women killing children. I mean, she didn't say it like that, okay? And she wasn't extreme enough for them. What's my point? The abortion industry is a big business. And guess what? Just like when the gospel began to touch this idol, they went crazy. What does... What does What does the abortion industry do if they feel that their profits are being threatened? Huh? But you know, the gospel does have impact. It's a fact. You can talk to Rebecca Klein, and and this is fact. One of the leading, the leading things that has affected the abortion industry has been the ultrasound machine. Why? Women... That's why Planned Parenthood doesn't like doing ultrasounds. Because when you see a living human being, it's not a mass of tissue or whatever the euphemisms they call it. And they see a baby with legs kicking and moving. Guess what? More than likely now, that mother is less likely to take the life of that baby. That's been a great tool. Do you think God's been behind that? You bet. You realize in the state of Missouri, state of Missouri, we think sometimes it just seems so overwhelming, and it is overwhelming. But in the state of Missouri, the whole state, you realize there's only one abortion clinic left in the whole state of Missouri? A Planned Parenthood operation that's trying to hang on for dear life? So don't underestimate the value of electing men or women who are pro-life. If they're not pro-life, I don't care what their health plan is. Because right there that tells me they got a bad health plan if they believe in part of their health plan is killing infants. And now it isn't even in the third trimester. What? They kill them outside the womb. Would you ever think that you lived in a world where a candidate from any party or whatever, again, this is, this is a free, equal opportunity offensive message, right? Uh that they can't even admit that there might be a time when a baby is born or almost near birth that they say, yeah, we shouldn't take the life. That's where we're at, folks. What's behind it? Satan is behind it. And Satan in driving the profitability and the money. What about the selling of baby parts? Why? You think it's... No, Because there's money to be made in that type of thing. 
You realize the pornography industry is big bucks? Estimates are that pornography in the United States alone, and they can't be exact with numbers because a lot of the pornography industry is controlled by the, you know, underworld, the, 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 the mob, and a lot of those illegal things. But they estimate the pornography industry in the United States is $6 billion to $15 billion industry. One article I read said that the pornography industry, as far as profits, is worth more to the U.S. economy than Netflix, the NBA, or the NFL. Marriott Hotels, it took them to 2011 before they removed access to pornography in their hotels. If you know anything about the Marriott Corporation, it's owned by uh, the Marriott family or Mormons. But you know why they could never remove it? Because it was a big money maker. Hello? Are y'all breathing? Well, quit oxygen. Talk about abortion and pornography. That'll that'll When you look at the history of Christianity, imperfect, imperfect. There's a lot of stuff that we're not proud of. In the United, as, a, as Christians in the advancement historically. We have been slow on slavery. We've been slow on just a lot of things that we are not. But, you know, this is an imperfect people. But one of the things that you will see is that Christians have been behind the establishment and advancement of hospitals, the feeding and care of the poor and the orphans, it was early in the, the Christian church that it was Christians that when in the Roman world that when uh, uh, if, if an abortion, that infanticide, they would go and abandon babies. You see that in the news now. They would just go and leave the baby by the side of the road to die. And it was Christians who went out and rescued these babies. But by and large, our world, our world is better because of Christianity than had Christianity never existed. Hello? Had Jesus not risen from the dead and had been another religion that would have died out in the first century, our world, our existence, is better because of Christians being that salt and light in a fallen world. Historically, church, Christianity has been confused on how to do all this. And there's been either leaning too heavily and sometimes what's called a a social gospel, okay, meaning where that's our calling and uh, that's part of it. Uh, maybe political advancement if we just elect the right people, but electing good people is a good thing, I believe, right? Righteous leaders exalt the nation, the Bible says, so that's a good thing. They're not perfect. Uh, maybe some Christians in some quarters advocated, you know, forming a militia, taking an army, uh, Nobody I know or part of clubs I've been a part of, but, but that's been one way. Or maybe adjusting the message of Christianity to maybe make it more uh, adaptable to the culture and, and changing times. I mean, church, the church has struggled with all these things. But here's the key, is that where the gospel has advanced and lives have been changed, lives have been transformed, the community is transformed. You take a person of, of, and I won't name a profession because as soon as I do that, I'll have three of you out there be mad at me. So 
You take this person, any dog catchers. We'll pick on dog catchers. All right, good. You take a non-Christian dog, whatever, fill in the blank. And guess what? They answer to a higher authority. And all of a sudden, they can't cheat and steal and, and, and manipulate their way in their profession because now they come under the lordship of Christ. Do you not think that industry, whether it's entertainment, medicine, whatever it is. I mean, the testimony, and I don't remember her name. I went and heard her, I believe it was at a banquet. Was it here or in Illinois? The young woman that uh, was a former employee for Planned Parenthood. She has a book and made the movie uh, with her life. And what happened? God began to change her life, and she can no longer work in that uh, abortion industry. Just like these guys out burning this occultism stuff. So why, to kind of bring it back, bring it home, why, what caused the success of the gospel in Ephesus? What caused the gospel to be successful in Ephesus? And what, I believe, will cause the success of the gospel in Lakeland? And don't misunderstand me, and I think we're trying to balance uh, a, a healthy church will be advancing in doing uh, the labors and the works that minister to the most needy among us. James said that religion that is pure and undefiled before God, before God the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their afflictions. And that's just a few verses down from when he said, Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. Jesus, when he fed the multitude, I think Jesus understood that people are more receptive, just like the folks you know, at the, who are getting their daily rations or, or meals at the dump there in, in the Dominican, that people are much more open to hear what you have to say when their stomachs aren't growling and their heads are about to explode because they haven't eaten. I can look around, including me. None of us have that issue here. Okay? None of us have that issue. We don't probably even know what that is. Some of you may, and I don't want to. But what are, what, are, what are the causes? Let me suggest three quick things, and they are quick. What caused the success of the gospel in Ephesus? Number one is they were committed. There was a commitment there. They were committed to the message of Christ. They were committed to the gospel. And primarily, they were being led by a committed man by the name of Paul who was committed to Christ and he was committed to that message and the key to his influence the key of how God used his life and again there were others and if you read in Acts you'll see that there were disciples of Paul they're the ones that told him don't jump in the midst of that mob because Paul was ready to go out there and and take that group on short little guy that the Bible talks about Paul and he's ready to take him on you know Uh, but they told him don't do it it's not safe So there was others there, but Paul was the driving force. And the key to his influence was not a charismatic personality. I mean, not a, you know, he was just Mr. Personality or a clever marketing strategy or he did political influence. But you know what the key was? And we see him as he, in Acts 20, where we'll we'll be uh, in a few weeks, that when Paul left the church at Ephesus, he was speaking to the elders of the Ephesian church there that he had established. And notice what he says in Acts 20, verse 27 and part of 31. He says that I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole 
counsel of God. This is what he's telling when he says farewell. And the Bible says that when they saw him off the boat, they cried because they knew they'd never see him again. It's a very touching scene. And he said, I didn't shrink. I didn't pull back one thing from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And then he says, verse 31, therefore be alert, remembering, he says that for three years, three years he spent in Ephesus total, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Do you see the pastoral care of Paul? With tears, with laboring of a heart. Because why? Paul was committed to this message. And do you think that that commitment... There's some things you can, that are taught, and there's some things that are caught. And I think Paul's passion and commitment was not only taught, but I think it was caught, and there was a commitment there by what he said. 1 Corinthians one twenty one, Paul would write later, For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And don't think that... The only people God can use are people that stand up here. No, when you tell people about Christ, when you exhort with words that are tied to the Scriptures, you're preaching this message of Christ crucified, that Jesus Christ came to save and rescue the lost. He says, but we preach Christ crucified, or we preach the cross. He said, it might be foolishness to the outsiders, but to us... That's our message. Secondly, not only were they committed to the gospel of why God used and made this successful in Ephesus, but they were converted. The power of a converted church. Now you may think, well, wait a minute, that seems kind of oxymoronic uh, that in every church, converted church? No. A church isn't just a gathering of institution and an organization. Church, ecclesia in the Greek means called out ones. It's a church, people who identify with this message that are converted. We won't read it again, I have it. But, but that verse 18 and 19, when they went out and burned all their stuff, they were demonstrating that there was a demarcation between the old and the new. They were converted. Their lives were changed. You think, well, what, uh, uh, what, is a, uh, what does a converted church look like? Well, you don't have to go too far. You just go back to Acts chapter 2, that when this church gathered together and people uh, over 5,000 in one day, probably more than that, almost 10,000, and it says in Acts 2, 42, we see the characteristics of a converted church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the Word of God and the fellowship. They, they linked Being a part of God's work and God's body was being a part and being visible with others that are part of that. And to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, meaning that not only did they eat their meal, but sharing in communion, the Lord's table, and prayers. And it says, verse 43, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through who? The apostles. Okay, don't miss that. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. Can you believe that some people look at that and see that that was the early form of some kind of socialistic, communistic mentality they had, which is crazy? That wasn't what was going on. It just meant that if whatever I have and you need it, you're welcome to it. If you need it, you know, use it, right? 
They had all things in common. They shared. There was, a, there was koinonia. Yeah, we use that word. I know you use that word every day. And it says, verse 40, it says, verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. There wasn't some program. There wasn't some big marketing strategy with a cool logo. What were they doing? They were just responding as the Holy Spirit led them because they were committed uh, uh, and converted. And day by day, attending the temple together, they were Jews, Okay, there still, there still was a growing. And they attended the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with gladness and generous of heart. So all these things, how did God use this church? Look at verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord did what? Added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So there was a committed people. They were converted and why God used them, there were also, they were consistent. The third reason, I believe, for the success of the gospel in Ephesus and anywhere is the church's consistency with the message and how that message was communicated. Consistent in their use that the method or tools was that which God blessed. You remember when Paul said to the Corinthians uh, where he was before he went to Ephesus and he later wrote that, those two letters? He said, look, when I came among you, I did not come to you in words of persuasive speech. I wasn't coming trying to manipulate you into words, but I came, in essence, what he's saying, I came in the power of the Spirit in preaching the gospel. I love Romans 1.16. Don't miss this. Paul said, for I am not ashamed of what? The gospel. When we talk about the gospel, that's shorthand. We're talking about the finished work of Christ, Christ's rescue, his death, burial, resurrection, what Christ actually did. I am not ashamed of the gospel. We have a church that is ashamed of the gospel because you will go to church on Sunday and hear every kind of bit of nonsense except the gospel. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it. What is it? The gospel What's the power of God? Unusual manifestations of, quote-unquote, the Holy Spirit? No. What's the power of God? It is the gospel. It is the truth of the word. They were consistent. The believers did not lobby the city authorities. They didn't picket the silvermith shops or organize demonstrations against Artemis worship. They did not try to somehow gain a popularity by becoming immersed into the culture of Ephesus. You know, we're just kind of like you. We look like idol worshipers, but we're really not. We're going to sneak truth in. Some churches think that if we kind of pretend not to be a church, right, and we get you in here and we make sure you're out in 58 minutes, we give you some cappuccino and coffee and make it all, and that somehow you won't even realize you're in church. Because we're not going to talk about anything that would offend you. We're going to talk about sin. We're not going to talk about you. You know, we're not going to talk about any, uh, just, you know, how to have a... Uh, a more stable marriage, that's good. People should have stable marriages. That's a good thing, right? We're all for that here. We all should be motivated to be good on our job and be stress-free and all that. But my friend, if it is a message void of Jesus Christ, Him crucified one way, the way, the truth, and the life, if it is a message void 
of the gospel. It has no power, and it will have no power to change people's lives. All it will do, all it will do is window dressing on lost people. It is, it is rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. That's all it is. It gives a, 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 you know, and guess what? The Bible says that in the latter days, there will be great growth among those who accumulate for themselves teachers who will be appealing to the itching ears of the, of the people. So just because it's big and because it's the thing and they've got a cool website, how do you judge? You judge by the standard of truth. And again, there are, understand, there are core things. There's a lot of preferences we have in the body of Christ. Even how we do church, there's certainly freedom and preferences. The Bible doesn't say anything about how to collect the money. The Bible doesn't say anything about having nice chairs. The Bible doesn't say a lot about a lot of things that we do. And there's freedom in that, okay? But I'm talking about the core truth is how a man or a woman, how their life is changed or transformed is through the truth of the gospel. That we have to be vigilant. And we have to have an ability to have discernment concerning what is true and what is not true. They were consistent in the message they profess to others. I love, even though it's about another church, I think you could attribute the testimony to this church of 1 Thessalonians I think this would be true of Ephesus. Sherry, why don't you come this time? Look at the scripture there. Even though it's, he wrote this about the Thessalonians. Remember, if you go back in, what is it, chapter uh, 18, the Thessalonians, he went to the church at Thessalonica, and they weren't, real, they weren't real receptive. They weren't real happy, okay? They weren't real happy with Paul and the message, But listen to what he wrote. Something happened. Their lives began to be transformed eventually. He says this about them. He says, and you became imitators of us. I think the same thing can be said about the Ephesians. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. with the joy of the Holy Spirit. See, that doesn't fit into a wealth and prosperity gospel of receiving the word in affliction with joy in the Holy Spirit. That's tough to reconcile with some of the nonsense you hear in uh, verse 7. So that you became an example. Their lives were transformed to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. That would be modern-day Greece as that church. For not only has the word word of the Lord sounded forth from you, in Macedonia, in Achaia, that's further west. That's, but your faith in God has gone forth where? Everywhere. So that we need not say anything. How did, this, how did God promote this? Because of their example, their faith in God. They're living the truth that the faith and the reputation has gone everywhere. God has done this. Verse 9, for they themselves report, these people who have heard about your conversion, your commitment to the gospel, your consistency with the message, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. Notice how you 
Turn to God from idols to do what? To serve the living and true God. Isn't that great? How you turn from God to serve the living God.